This episode of Politics Without the Boring Bits is sponsored by BT, because BT means business. BT knows that businesses come in many shapes, sizes and guises, from the person just starting out at their kitchen table to the biggest employer, which is why no matter what line of work you're in, they've got your back to help you succeed and do what you do best. No doubt connectivity is a must in Westminster, and it certainly helped us to get this episode created and distributed to you listening right now. BT already connects more than 1 million businesses and public sector organisations, offering secure and reliable connectivity. Nearly three quarters of people running a business or side hustle feel they couldn't do so without reliable broadband and mobile connectivity. That's why having connectivity you can count on is a must for business, whether it be facilitating multiple devices being connected at once or making team calls or guest Wi-Fi access for customers. BT's connectivity helps keep you and your customers happy. Whatever your business, BT's got your back. Search BT's got your back. This episode of Politics Without the Boring Bits is brought to you by Luton Rising, owners of London Luton Airport, the UK's most socially impactful airport. Find out more at lutonrising.org.uk. Hello, thank you for downloading the Times Redbox podcast. I am not Matt Chorley, I'm Luke Jones. Matt is still on holiday in Crete. He's not even responding to our phone calls at the moment, but we think he'll be back on Monday in the early hours. Uh, In the meantime, we are going to tell you how to topple a dictator. We'll hear some of the efforts uh, underway outside of Belarus to try and oust Europe's last dictator. First, our columnists, James Marriott and India Knight. Thank you so much for uh, being here, both of you. Um... First of all, should we talk about Afghanistan and, and Dominic Raab? We were just hearing from uh, John Stevens, whose scoop it was in the mail today, about him not taking this call when asked to by, um, by his officials. India, what did you, what did you make of this story? Uh, I think it's absolutely extraordinary. I think part of the problem, I was listening to your um, earlier discussion, um, which, was, which was very enlightening. I think part of the problem is that uh, Johnson has stuffed his cabinet full of Brexiteers. Brexit is now done. It's finished. It's over. The Brexiteers, by and large, aren't up to the job. They've got sort of third-rate minds. The idea that the Foreign Secretary wouldn't take a call because he was too busy enjoying his holiday is just insane. Uh, and Ben Wallace uh, coming to his defence is also, you know, the idea that... The house is on fire, but now the fire's so big that there's not really any point in calling the fireman. It wouldn't make any difference. It's going to burn down anyway. It's not a position. You know, it's not, it's not, it's unthinkable to me. So um, I think uh, Rob probably won't go anywhere, but I really think he should. James? Yeah, I mean, I, I agree. I agree with India. You kind of think about all this sort of um, ambitious talk about Global Britain in the Integrated Review published earlier this year. And, you know, these sort of um, ambitious pronouncements about our commitment to liberal democracy around the world. And if you're going to make ambitious pronouncements like that, you need competent, mm. ambitious people who are able to who are able to kind of get behind it and understand what it means and take things seriously. And I, it, I completely agree with India that it just seems that there's evidently not very few mm. people in the cabinet capable of capable of doing that. And in terms of the continuing struggle to get to the back to the sort of actual issue at the centre of this, the continuing struggle of, of um, British nationals, Afghans uh, who have been accepted to come to the UK, that their struggle to actually get into the airport and get over here on a military plane. India, how have you felt seeing all of these images and reporting that we've seen in the past few days? Or some of the truly desperate scenes of people, you know, passing babies over the wall, shots being fired by Taliban to try and uh, deter them away from it. It's... Um, it's awful stuff. I have genuinely, it's one of those news stories, you know, I've genuinely felt distressed all week 
to the point where I'm finding the footage very difficult to watch. The the people who clung to the fuselage and fell out into the sky, and as you say, the babies being passed over the fence. It's just it's it's unbearable. And I don't think it's just me displaying unique sensitivity. I think everybody in the country who's seen those images feels kind of numb and shocked and horrified and desperate to do something. Um and nobody quite knows what to do. But, I mean, it's it's clear that it's a completely untenable situation. And as I was just saying, the people in charge don't seem up to the job. It's a catastrophe. Let's move to something, uh, well, sort of equally grim, isn't it? Murderous incels. Um, James, the subject of your column today, uh, the incel movement. For the, for the completely uninitiated in this world, just explain what we're on about here and why. Uh, so incel uh, means involuntary celibate, and it's a sort of internet, I mean, movement might be too strong, association of people who um, say that they are involuntarily celibate and they are deeply angry with society about this, uh, and especially deeply misogynistically angry with, with women. Uh, and this is the movement that a lot of people have linked to um, the shooting in Plymouth last week. And yeah, incels are sort of uh, long-standing sort of um, minor sort of fascination of mine, which I think is actually... Um, the case for a lot of people. I think um, I'm always surprised. This is kind of the theme of my column. I'm always surprised by quite how much people, everybody I know seems to know about incels and incel jargon um, because I think they have this sort of weird fascination for a lot of surprised how much we know or little. How much? Do you oh. know, I don't know. I don't no, know how familiar really, you are with incels. No, but... the, the sort of lexicon that you go through in the column, I, I'd never heard any That's of those interesting. before. Well, this might, be, this, um, this might just be the circles I move in, uh, which I promise are not <laughs> incel circles. Um that that's really interesting because I always sort of I'm always surprised when sort of one of these um, incel tragedy shootings happens. How many columnists seem to have these terms at their fingertips? And I was sort of serving all my friends. I was sort of giving and in, in my various WhatsApp chats, I was giving them all these terminologies, and I was amazed at how many people knew. Mm. Um, and I sort of think that the ideology and a lot of the terms have sort of entered the mainstream. I think, you know, you know on Twitter, you see the, um, the Chad X, the Virgin Y meme, if you come across this. No. Maybe not. Okay, well, maybe I'm just more into incels than everyone else. <laughs> um, but I just sort of think, I don't know, I sort of think this weird, horrible, misogynistic um, set of beliefs is just kind of weirdly, widely, I, I always think it's sort of weirdly, widely known about them. I always seem, I always feel a little bit surprised at how, how seriously they're taken. And they just a few things sprang out at me. Um, There's a book published this week by an Oxford philosopher called um, Amir Srinivasan uh, called The Right to Sex, which dedicates a chapter to taking on this incel idea that uh, men are owed sex. Uh, the New York Times columnist Ross Douthat published this um, sort of controversial column arguing that perhaps society would have to redistribute sex. Um, the Canadian oh. philosopher Jordan Peterson has argued that perhaps socially enforced monogamy um, might help um, assuage this kind of epidemic of uh, angry, violent men. And I just sort of, I just sort of thought, I don't know, just, there's so much of this in the atmosphere that people are kind of, these ideas which are completely bananas and are nothing to do with anything and are just resentful, angry, mm. disaffected, socially failed young men are sort of, I, I don't know, people know about them, they have this kind of weird intellectual currency as if they're telling us anything useful about society, which I, which I really didn't think they're not. And, and that's the strange thing, isn't it, India, that it, it's been sort of painted as a kind of school of thought or an ideology. Yes, yes. I mean, apart from the fact that I'm always very wary of amplifying bonkers micro-movements, um, the idea that anybody would engage intellectually seriously with any of this stuff. I mean, these are just sad men, boys, men, persons, who women don't want to sleep with because they're revolting. They need to, you know... Without wanting to sound like my own grandmother, they need to kind of leave their fetid basements and go outside and get some fresh air and interact with the 
with with the real world rather than with each other in a state of kind of permanent fury. Mm. Um, but yes, the idea that anybody would take them seriously, I think, is really unhelpful, actually. Uh, well, and amplifying in an unhelpful way. Well, not just people. Uh, James sort of mentioned New York Times columnists talking, you know, yeah. sort of edging sort of close to this kind of thing. Um you can't it's... make women sleep with revolting men who they don't want to sleep with. It's not a thing. You know, it's not it's not an argument. It's not an intellectual argument. It's not a moral argument. It's it's nothing. It's nonsense. I wonder how you think, James, this kind of thing should be tackled. And whether and whether, and whether it is so worrying that actually there does need to be some kind of I don't even like government attention to it or something. Yeah, I don't know. I mean I suspect it needs to be I suspect if there is a solution it'll be the kind of solution that's applied to other extremist groups and movements and de-radicalization um, and things like that. I mean, the sort of thing that struck me uh, re- reading about this was that I think the sort of, um, if you kind of read the sociology and the anthropology of um, societies, and it's something we've been about a bit recently, all societies, I think, the danger to most societies comes from um, low status, sort of socially disaffected, unmarried uh, young men. And these um, this is true. This is true across societies. These are the people who are always the most dangerous element of any society. More violent, more prone to heavy drinking, um, more more prone to gambling. Just more dangerous, sort of unstable people. And in every society, they're attracted to whatever the sort of um, extremist movement is. So you you might take the example. You know, if you're an angry, disaffected man growing up in um, you know, the Middle East in the early two thousands, you might end up drawn into sort of Islamist movement. And mm. I'm always fascinated when you read the um, biographies of, for, for example, Islamist terrorists how much they sound like incels. Um, so Mohammed Atta, the guy who uh, masterminded the 9-11 attacks, uh, if you read the kind of really kind of creepy, horrifying testimonies from the people who knew him when he was a student at the University of Hamburg, um, they describe him as sort of unwashed, completely socially incompetent, uh, not even speaking to you if you said hello to him. And I just think it's always the same kind of person who will always get sucked into, into whatever the kind of dominant zeitgeist ideology is mm. that seems at this time to explain all their problems. Um, and I, I guess when people say, you know, we need to treat incels like terrorists, I think that might be an argument that it is the same kind of thing because it's the same kind of people with the same kind of resentments and the same kind of problems, I, I, I think. Um, are, are incels not um, uh, a product of a life lived entirely online? Is that, I mean, that's what I think, but I don't know if it's true. Is it true, James? I'm, I'm, I don't know. I'm, I'm always... I mean, do, I'm, they gather, do they gather in, I don't know, pubs and talk about how women owe them sex and are revolting for withholding it or or is it all via keyboard yeah i mean i i'm always a bit skeptical about you know um you know anything is completely new um i think i and obviously you know there have been terrorist organizations made up of sort of angry loner disaffected young men before there have always been you know there have been these people always been dangerous to society yes I, i i kind of wonder if the kind of weird nature of the intel movement. It's like kind of weird individualism. There's no wider cause. Everybody's mm. cause is just, I have an immense personal grievance against society. Uh, and only the internet could bring these quite disparate mm. people together and make this sort of like disaffected, wounded ego individualism into anything, mm. into a kind of, into something that's a wider movement, which, you know, even that maybe sounds, you know, as dignifying a bit. It's just a load of people who all have similar grievances about their own lives. And maybe that is a very internet thing. I think you might be right about that. And it's interesting, indeed, because with with that, with what's happening in Afghanistan at the moment, it's a sort of awful um, misogyny revival we're seeing at the moment. Yeah, it's a depressing August, isn't it? Traditionally, the silly season. And, you know, you find yourself really longing for front pages about cheeky seagulls nicking chips. <laughs> it's, just sort of, it's just the 
just terrible, terrible, terrible time. But yes, absolutely. It's all, I mean, well, as so much of everything that is wrong in society is to do with aggression or violence towards women. Mm. Can I ask you then about about a, uh, well, it's not quite seagulls nicking chips, but it's it's a very August story. Um, This is the Boatmen who are this, the sort of surprise hit. Uh, they live in the UK. They're a couple. They swapped their semi-detached home for a narrowboat last year and they are a US online uh, hit. Paul and Anthony Smith's story have been documenting their new life in the canals in northwest England on YouTube videos. Um, I guess a bit sort of like... Um, Oh, gosh, I've completely forgotten her name now. Um, Prunella Scales. Prunella Scales. India, you read my mind. Yes, yes, I love that. What's it called? Great Canal Journeys. That's it's the so one. soothing. Yes. I was going to say, by way of trying to explain who Prunella Scales was, I was just going to go, oh, I know. Like that with a, <laughs> with a fake landline held to my ear. Um, <laughs> but are you are you tempted by that lifestyle, India? Do, do, can you sort of, uh, can you picture yourself, you know, just setting off on, on a canal boat and documenting it for US YouTube viewers? They don't have canals in America, do they? So that must be quite fascinating in itself, the, yes. the, the canalness of canals. Um, no, but I'm very in favour of anybody who wants to pack up the life that they're living in search of adventure. I think it's, I think it's great. James? Um, yeah, well, I, I've given the canal life a lot of consideration because I, <laughs> I live next to a canal. Um, and the thing that's always attracted me about the canal boats near me, but they just... I don't know if you've ever seen these in London, but these absolutely enormous super tankers of canal boats. Mm. Where there's a sort of double width Yeah, ones. as if they're, du- yeah. as if they're doubly yeah. wide. And I, I, I sometimes look, I'm always peering in the windows of these things because I'm fascinated by the people who live in them. I assume all investment bankers who think they have a bohemian side or something like that. Yeah. I once saw a baby grand piano inside one. This immaculately, I mean, this canal boat that was bigger than the flat I live in. Oh, well, there was one, it was in the Times a couple of months ago. There was a canal boat which they've t- turned into a concert hall. <laughs> and this couple have put a baby grand in there oh God, and, it, maybe, and, and they've got little yeah, sort of tables and chairs and so they sort of do recitals i wonder if it was people. that that i saw that it would have been that how weird and that, I, although actually you know given that given the state of the canal me the appallingly middle class canal near me they're probably i'm completely believe they're probably uh multiple uh boats going around with baby grand pianos and probably if not you know full orchestras inside them <laughs> but not the seafaring life for you india oh i don't know i'd quite like to live on a boat problem with narrow boats is that they are by definition quite narrow um, but no, I think I think I think they're wildly romantic. I used to live near the canal in Camden in London when I lived in London, and there were no baby grands, and it really it was quite bohemian and sort of grubby and dreadlocky and rough around the edges, and I always found it really appealing. Um, you haven't to sort of navigate round sort of old trolleys and things lots. like that, wouldn't you? Yes, there are a lot of old trolleys, and um, well, I'm sure there isn't any more, but there used to be, you know, rat syphilis in the water, so you wouldn't want to fall in. <laughs> well, I mean, rat syphilis, yes, yeah, some terrible rat-borne syphilitic disease um but generally the idea of that was james Marriott and india knight in a moment how to topple a dictator um, round and round the northwest is delightful <laughs> well we'll chalk you up as a maybe uh, that was james Marriott and india knight in a moment how to topple a dictator hey i'm ryan reynolds recently i asked mint mobile's legal team if big wireless companies are allowed to raise prices due to inflation they said yes and then when I asked if raising prices technically violates those onerous two-year contracts, they said, what the f*** are you talking about, you insane Hollywood ass!" So to recap, we're cutting the price of Mint Unlimited from $30 a month to just $15 a month. Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month. Slows full terms at mintmobile.com.
I'm Sandra, and I'm just the professional your small business was looking for. But you didn't hire me because you didn't use LinkedIn jobs. LinkedIn has professionals you can't find anywhere else, including those who aren't actively looking for a new job, but might be open to the perfect role, like me. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't visit other leading job sites. So if you're not looking on LinkedIn, you'll miss out on great candidates like Sandra. Start hiring professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash people today. This episode of Politics Without the Boring Bits is brought to you by Luton Rising, owners of London Luton Airport, the UK's most socially impactful airport. Find out more at lutonrising.org.uk. Now, how to topple a dictator in Belarus. In Belarus. I remember a discussion with Lutschenko when he said that he will kill me if I will betray him. After elections in 2020, there were violent protests. Alexander Lukashenko, who'd been in charge since 1994, said that he won. Uh, But the main opposition leader, Svetlana Tikhonovskaya, said that actually she won. And recently, the regime's practices have moved further and further into the spotlight. A Belarusian Olympic sprinter evaded kidnap in Tokyo, you'll remember. An activist was found dead in Ukraine. A Belarusian journalist was seized from a plane uh, during a flight which was meant to be going from Greece to Lithuania. So what is happening? In a moment, a former Belarusian minister on what he is doing to try and spark a revolution from over the border in Poland. First, former UK ambassador to Belarus, now senior fellow for Russia and Eurasia at the International Institute for Strategic Studies, Dr Nigel Gould-Davis. What concerns does he have about Alexander Lukashenko's reign? He was first elected in 1994, and that was the only free and fair election he submitted himself to. The authoritarian tendencies began very soon after he took office, and he quickly engineered a political system that became steadily more authoritarian. By Certainly by the end of the 1990s, it was no longer democratic. The uh, last remains of a significant and permitted opposition had either been crushed or, uh, in a few individual cases, actually murdered. So, uh, yes, this has been a highly authoritarian system for some time. Now, since that time, it's waxed and waned a little bit for tactical reasons. There have been times when Lukashenko has faced pressure from neighboring Russia to try to exert greater control over Belarus, and he's turned to the West to a limited degree, and he's realized he has to relax things slightly to do that, release political prisoners and so on, make a show of becoming uh, a more engaging partner. But whenever that has threatened to undermine his uh, rule, he's clamped down quickly and emphatically. That in 2006 after the election, then 2010 even more so. Uh, And we've seen this on a, a far, far greater scale now over the past year. And what particularly about all of this worries you in terms of, you mentioned, you know, clamping down on opposition parties and the rest. I wonder in what ways, what tools has he used, what institutions has he dismantled? 
The regime now is more repressive than it has ever been. The use of brutality and quite meticulous torture on a wide scale has been very evident since last autumn. The number of political prisoners now in Belarusian jails is unprecedented. All the main opposition leaders have either been arrested or forced abroad, sometimes under extreme threat. That was true of Svetlana Tikhonovskaya, for example. The laws already repressive are being tightened further to clamp down uh, on extremism. The system relies more than ever on the hard men, the security services uh, and the implementers of repression. It's a, a very, very harsh place indeed now. And to what extent is the regime and is Alexander Lukashenko in the pocket of President Putin? He is an independent actor. Belarus as a whole is reliant on Russia for financial support, mainly because Lukashenko has taken so few steps to reform an essentially Soviet-era economy. He's dependent on Russia. The story of that relationship in recent years has been a series of attempts by Putin to turn that economic dependence into greater political influence and mm. even control and try to integrate Belarus in some way into the Russian orbit. Now, Lukashenko has worked hard to try to resist that with some success. The question now is whether he can continue to or even wishes to uh, do that. But he is not a, a puppet of Russia. And Russia knows, too, that it faces no easy choices in deciding how to try to make use of what it sees as new opportunities now. Go back to the recent history of neighboring Ukraine, back to the, the annexation of Crimea in 2014 and the intervention in Donbass. Uh, much of that has had adverse consequences for Russia. It has uh, ignited a stronger sense of Ukrainian national identity distinct from uh, Russia. It has brought Western powers to the support of Ukraine. Russia, in many ways, miscalculated badly in Ukraine and knows at the risk of miscalculating in Belarus as well. Just finally, uh, Mr. Davis, what do you make of the, uh, of the attempts of opposition leaders to either overthrow Lukashenko or try and tame his worst impulses. You mentioned Svetlana Timonovskaya a moment ago. Later, we're going to be hearing from uh, Pavel Tushka, a former culture minister who has now fled to Poland and is set up essentially a shadow government uh, waiting. Have they got any hope? The history of situations like this in other times and places, especially in Europe, suggests that in the long term, it's simply an unsustainable position for a highly authoritarian ruler to continue to run a country largely dependent on appeal to fear rather than appeal to hope or to the interests of the population as a whole. Lukashenko has lost the legitimacy to rule. 
in the eyes of the majority of his people. It's impossible to see him ever regaining that again. He remains in power for now, but everything about the context of that rule has changed. He is more isolated within the country than ever before. He is more estranged from the West than ever before. And there will be members of the elite around him whom he depends upon to implement his will, who will see the increasingly erratic decisions that he's making and will draw their own conclusions, I think, about where their own interests and the interests of their country in the longer term really lie. Uh, it really is the last dictatorship in Europe. It is the exception now. And I think that it's more likely than not that in due course that will show itself to be an unsustainable situation. Mm. Dr Nigel Gould-Davis, uh, formerly UK Ambassador to Belarus, uh, now at the International Institute for Strategic Studies. Pavel Tushka was a uh, Minister of Culture in Belarus. He's now an opposition leader in exile in Poland. I spoke to him the other day and asked him first about uh, how he started, how he first became a diplomat. So my dream was to be in the state service uh, all my life. It was my feelings, it was my willings and... Uh, after the graduation of the university, of course, I want to be a diplomat. So I start my career as a professional diplomat in the Ministry of Foreign Affairs uh, more than 25 years ago. And of course, in that time, my dream was to build, uh, to participate in building of a new independent country, Republic of Belarus. After the uh, elections in 1994, when Lukashenko became first time a president, of course, I, I'm, in that time I was a young diplomat, I, I was a young student before, in that time, and I decided not to vote for him, and all my family were against, because we thought in that moment that he's a populist, and he will never be a uh, in reality, the man who will struggle for our independence. In that time, he started negotiations with Russian Federation, I remember, with Chernomyrdin, with Yeltsin. But uh, all my career, I'm, um, I, was, I tried to do my best to help my country to develop as an independent state. And when did you start to become concerned with the way that President Lukashenko operated with what he did first time i opened my eyes when it was a difficult situation in our parliament in 1995 he changed the constitution and he received more uh powerful instruments and it was the first steps for him to become a dictator uh, later of course i remember the disappearing of the uh, very important politicians in our political scene ex uh, vice prime minister victor garchar ex minister of internal affairs yuri zaharenko one journalist uh, uh, dmitry zavatsky one businessman krasovsky they had disappeared and uh, we uh, don't have uh, information uh, how it was happened still now but Everybody understands now that uh, it, they were killed by their personal decision of the Lukashenko. And what were you thinking? And what were you thinking at the time when you were working as a minister or, or as an ambassador, as you were later on, with all of that happening around you? Were you worried about your own safety and security? 
Yes, of course, it's, it's, it was uh, uh, everybody in the state servers. If you have your own opinion, if you have your own opposition, you are in the risks, uh, risk list. And I remember uh, when I became their minister of culture, I was only one in the government who used every day publicly Belarusian language because all of members of the government, all the state service using a Russian language. And uh, it was a risk for me personally because I was criticized personally by Lukashenko. He said me that I'm a nationalist, that I'm using Belarusian language, that I want to have more Belarusian culture in Belarus. And Lukashenko create a blacklist of their singers, writers, uh, actors, uh, blacklist uh, person who were against of him. I remember I received first time such blacklist 250 person. They were created by the KGB and it was a decision made by Lukashenko. They start uh, to have a censor of the theatral performance uh, in Belarus. I was against. They said me to uh, remove uh, some actors. I, I was against. So uh, very often it was a conflict. Yeah. We discussed with him personally. Uh, if I will tell you that in that moment when I discuss such conflicts uh, in conflict situation with him, I'm not afraid, it, it will be not true. Of course I'm afraid. Uh, because uh, one day I received a phone call from the chief of the KGB, uh, Mr. Vadim Zaitsev, general, and he said that uh, all the foreign diplomats think that you will be maybe a new president and you will be against of the Lukashenko. I remember discussion with Lukashenko when he said that he will kill me if I will betray him. So, of course, it was a difficult situation. For one side, I'll never agree with his policy, but for other side, it was how to find this solution, how to survive in that situation. And so take us then to, to 2020, but before all the protests started to happen, you've, you say you've had conversations in the past where President Lukashenko has said, if you betray him, um, he'll kill you. And yet you're seeing what's happening with the protests uh, uh, and you're agreeing with them. But what do you do? Of course, for my career, it was a crucial moment because in that time after end of my mission as, a, as ambassador in France, uh, I became a general director of the National Dramatic Theatre, the oldest one, the most popular theatre, Belarusian theatre in, in Belarus. And uh, can you imagine the atmosphere in between the actors? Of course, they're uh, very open-minded people. They want to have a freedom. They want to uh, have their rights and the rights to vote. And it's difficult to, to tell them that you have not such rights. And I saw the development of this situation before the elections, before the 9th of August because many of them start to participate in the different manifestations, different public events, and uh, KGB uh, officers, uh, their officers from the uh, Lukashenko security service were in the theater and they proposed me to stop this in the theater. And uh, Minister of Culture said to me, you know, if it, it is impossible for you to do yourself, you should to invite police 
and to arrest the actors who will continue their struggling. I cannot imagine that me as an ex-minister of culture, ex-ambassador, I have a principles, so it's impossible for me to imagine that I will ask police to arrest the actors of the theater. And of course, after the elections, when it was, uh, we have no uh, internet, we, it was difficult to receive uh, information, uh, what is happening on the streets of, the, of Minsk in the different cities. But in, from my house, I living behind the Minsk, I saw the fire in this, uh, at night, I saw on the Telegram channels a lot of videos how people, how, what the scale of violence it was. I said that I'm against the violence and I want dismission of the Minister of Internal Affairs, Deputy Minister of Internal Affairs. And later I was invited by the protesters to the central square of the city. And you had, as you say, you previously spoken to Lukashenko and he said if you betrayed him, he would kill you. So in that moment, when you are publicly now part of the protest movement, you must have been thinking, I need to get out of Belarus, I need to leave. Yes, after my public declaration, uh, my public words, it was published everywhere on mass media, in internet, telegram channels. I received a one phone call and one guy said to me, you know, you should understand from that moment, you will have a state security service 24 hours seven days per week. They'll be following you. Following me, yes. For me, it was a crucial moment. And uh, President Lukashenko called for your prosecution over all of this, so that was the point at which you left. Um, why Poland? Oh, uh, you know, I became a member of the Presidium of Coordination Council and they started the criminal investigation against me, all the members of the Presidium of Coordination Councils. Uh, one day, my daughter called me and said, uh, that Lukashenko publicly announced that I'm uh, cross the red line and uh, I invite one ambassador. I never slept in my house. I slept in the residence of the different European Union ambassadors in the hotels. Uh, it was, I changed everything in my life. And when Lukashenko said that words, it was absolutely understandable for me that I will be arrested. And I was on the residence, uh, on the territory of the residence of one uh, European Union ambassadors. And we discussed, discussed what to do. I said, I don't want to go out of Belarus. I want to stay to the territory of this embassy. And in Sunday, the protesters will arrive to the embassy and they will invite me and I will participate again in these huge manifestations, what we have in that days all over the Belarus. But European Union ambassador said it's impossible because it will be violence of the Vienna Convention, uh, diplomatic convention. And I made a phone call for my colleague as an ex-ambassador, ex-minister. Of course, I, I know personally Lukashenko. I met him, uh, a lot of officers of KGB, all the chiefs of the KGB. And I made one phone call for uh, one guy, his colonel in the KGB, and asked him what I can do. He proposed me from the chief of the KGB to step criticize Lukashenko and KGB will guarantee secure uh, security for me. And I uh, not accept this. I said it is impossible. 
And I, I made him a call uh, and he said to me, you have two options, to go out of the country or you will be arrested. And Polish ambassador said to me that he received, that uh, he invited me uh, by the prime minister of the Poland uh, to visit Poland, to participate in economic forum. And uh, he accompanied me personally to the border. And I was in the Poland because I was ex-ambassador in Poland. And my daughter and my mom at that time, they were in the Poland. So it was, uh, how to say, not not special decision. And now you are in, in Poland um, and the opposition movement continues trying to, to, to fight President Lukashenko and his um, continued hold on power. What is the plan for you? What do you want to see happen? And how is it going to happen? I have my dream. And I'm sure if you will have dream, you will um, realize it in life. And uh, I created a team, National Anti-Crisis Management, uh, and I'm a leader of this team. Uh, in this team, uh, several ex-ministers, ambassadors, uh, but also members of the different political parties, or yours organizations, uh, uh, such initiative as Honest People, they observe all elections, uh, last elections in Belarus. Now, most of us are repressed. Uh, I have now four criminal cases against me, one of the criminal cases it uh, means that I'm a terrorist and uh, I can be punished by the death penalty. So it's it's a difficult situation, but I have my dream to change the situation in my country. And with my team, we uh, try to do everything what we can. Our main lines is to, um, uh, to be active in such spheres as economy, foreign policy, security questions. Uh, we are preparing the sanction lists or personal sanction lists, economic sanction lists. We communicate with, with Great Britain authorities, also with ambassador of Great Britain here, diplomats, as, also, as always with Americans. We're very active in Brussels. In, and, and, uh, and your aim, sorry, is to, is to remove President Lukashenko. That is what you would like to see happen. Absolutely. Absolutely. He is a c- criminalist. He uh, should to be punished as an international. Take, who in your who in your plan takes his place? Is it yourself or is it Svetlana Tikhonovskaya? No, you you should understand. Of course, Svetlana Tikhonovskaya it is out of the discussion. He's the winner of the last elections. She's the winner of the last elections. Yes, uh, but uh, it it will be a difficult scenario. We can have two options. First option, if the Putin will change Lukashenko, and I'm sure he wants to change him. Uh, it's a question when he will do this and who we, he wants to be a new president of Belarus. Because, of course, he wants to have the guy who will be controlled by him personally. The second scenario, if the winner will be Belarusian people, and we are struggling for this second scenario. It's most difficult, and the uh, changes can be through the active protests, through the revolution, and of course, as a result, it can be the situation when Svetlana Tikhanovskaya will be in force as a temporary uh, president of Belarus, and she will organize 
um, during first month uh, new elections, president elections. Of course, it's a question of the new constitution. Who, what, what constitution we will have? Now we have the presidential constitution. All power in one hands, in one dictator, control everything in the country, everybody. Uh, but we want to have the uh, parliamentary presidential republic or parliamentary republic. We want to organize a system when the leader will be a prime minister. A prime minister will be the leader of the political party, which will win in the elections. So this uh, temporary, uh, uh, how to say, short, uh, short, uh, brief, uh, if we are telling about short-term situation, of course, Tikhanovsky will be the president, but in the middle term, it's mean uh, new elections, new constitution, and new president, legal president. And in terms of your situation now, of course, in the past few weeks, we have had a, a Belarusian athlete um, narrowly evade kidnap in the Tokyo Olympics. We've had uh, an opposition activist found dead in Kiev. Um, do you still fear for your safety? Could Lukashenko still um, make good on his promise and kill you? Two days uh, as I have security, but of course I'm not feeling safety. Deputy Minister of Internal Affairs said publicly that they in 100% ready to organize killing of the leaders of the democratic forces abroad. And uh, they they will do this, and we, it's a pity, we have um, had such examples now. Uh, of course, I'm not feeling safety. Uh, every day, can you imagine that before our interview, I received information against uh, about that. So every day I receive some, some signals that I'm not, uh, I'm the risk, um, in the risk list, yes. So I can be killed or, or they want to organize kidnap of myself. But it doesn't mean that I, uh, uh, I lost my motivation. I'm feeling the risk, but I not lost my motivation. Lukashenko during this press conference said that Latushka is responsible for the sanctions. Uh, he said a lot of bad words about me, but it's mean that I am, he tried to, how, to stop my activities, but it's, it is his mistake. I said I was in his system. I know the system which he created, and I will create the, the system which will um, change him, uh, change his uh, power in, in the Belarus, that we will receive our victory, and I will struggle. I will struggle for the freedom, for the human rights, because it's the main what I want to have in Belarus. I don't know whom I will be in the future of Belarus. Deputy of the parliament, prime minister, or I will be a candidate to be a president. It doesn't matter. I want to be on Belarus, in Belarus, and if I want to come back to Belarus, of course, I will do my uh, everything to to or do my best to create the situation when it will be the human rights, the, the most important value in, 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 in my country. Pavel Tushka, thanks very much for your time. I appreciate it. Thank you. Thank you so much.
There we go, a former Belarusian minister turned opposition activist now hiding out in Poland trying to overthrow Europe's last dictator. That was Pavel Latushka, former uh, minister of culture in Belarus, now in Poland uh, agitating to try and overthrow uh, the president there. That is it from us. I'll be back tomorrow, one day more, sitting in Fort Matchorley. If you like the podcast and things, if you like it and review it and things, apparently that helps. I'm Luke Jones 03 on Twitter. Matt will be back on Monday. This episode of Politics Without the Boring Bits is brought to you by Luton Rising, owners of London Luton Airport, the UK's most socially impactful airport. Find out more at lutonrising.org.uk. Hey, it's Danny Pellegrino from Everything Iconic. Ready to upgrade your style game without blowing your budget? Check out Quince. They've got all the good stuff, shirts and polos, activewear and fine leather goods, all at 50 to 80% less than other high-end brands. And the best part? They're all about safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. Get that luxury vibe without the luxury price tag. Hit up quince.com slash upgrade for free shipping and 365-day returns on your next order. That's quince.com slash upgrade.